Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello and welcome to the Institute for Government for this event, which we've organised in participation in partnership with the World Wildlife Fund on Can We Make UK Trade Policy Greener? I'm Jill Rutter. I'm a senior fellow at the Institute for Government. Uh, the right to an independent trade policy was trumpeted by its supporters a major dividend of a Brexit that saw the UK leave the EU customs union. Our ministers now get to decide and take responsibility for the way in which they take forward trade policy. In the forward to the Board of Trades Green Trade Strategy, the then Secretary of State for International Trade, Liz Truss, now of course Foreign Secretary, wrote enthusiastically about the prospects of green trade. She said, green trade represents a major opportunity for the UK, creating high value jobs in the low carbon economy, driving sustainable growth in all corners of the nation and fueling technological innovations that can be exported to the world. Free trade can be a lean, green, value creating machine that is good for developed and developing nations alike. She then went on to say, Climate change and nature loss are at the forefront of the international agenda, but mostly until now have only been discussed on the fringes of the trade agenda. They must be brought closer together. So today we're looking at how far the UK has developed a coherent approach to bring those agendas together. Are we pushing the boundaries as Liz has suggested we would and was possible? Or are we at the risk of sacrificing existing environmental standards to land trade deals and land that Brexit dividend? And what exactly do we mean by green trade anyway? So to tease out these issues over the next hour, I'm joined by a star panel. Uh, Anna Sands, Trade Policy Lead at the World Wildlife Fund. Chris Southworth, the Secretary General of the International Chamber of Commerce. Dmitry Grzybinski, former Australian trade negotiator, doyen of Trade Twitter and founder of Explain Trade, who has been spending the last few years training uh, UK trade negotiators. And last but absolutely by no means least, Sir Martin Donnelly, long serving permanent secretary at the Business Department, when I think it was called the Department for Business Innovation and Skills, and responsible for setting up the new Department for International Trade uh, with Liam Fox. So remember what you do. This is all on the record, video available later. Please post questions in the chat. Upvote those you like. That makes it much easier if they're you know, slightly poorer versions of the one you'd have asked anyway. Um, and tweet along with us at hashtag IFG trade. Our colleague is going to be tweeting from this from the IFG events account. So. We've heard Liz Truss's view on the opportunities and seen the ideas from the Board of Trade. A bit more on what that actually is later. So let's start with our panel's view on the fundamental question. What would a trade policy that is good for the environment actually look like? Anna, we're staging this event uh, in collaboration with Worldwide, with the Worldwide Fund for Nature. So I'm going to give you first go at this uh, question, Anna. Thank you, Jill, and thank you for the great introduction of the event. Um, I must say I'm always in admiration of Liz Truss's optimism and in a way it's quite inspiring how much um, sort of potential uh, she sees for, for trade and how what it can do for the environment. Um, so our take on what uh, a UK 
environmental trade policy should do is that it needs to go much more into the detail of what needs to happen in trade deals, what needs to happen in all kinds of legislation and policies to actually flesh out how it would work uh, for the environment. So we need to go beyond the Board of Trade, which is quite high level and which doesn't really set out a specific trade policy. It's an independent um, report, even though it's forwarded by the former Secretary of State for Trade. Um, so apart from these kind of broad, um, high level ideas about what we could do, we need to have more specific um, policies on what we do in trade agreements, what we do in legislation, and that should come in a published uh, UK trade policy, which is something we, we still don't have. So we still don't actually know what exactly is um, the Department of International Trade's policy for how it's going to do trade, how it's going to make it um, in line with its environmental goals. And we need to go beyond um, things that are just about the environment chapter or just about non-regressing for commitments. We need to be more specific on what we're going to import, how that affects our domestic industry, how we integrate that with international development policies. And I'm sure we'll talk much more about all of these details uh, during so, the event. Anna, give us an example of what you would like to see in uh, one of those more specific. So what would that start yeah. look like? So for, for one thing, we have um, uh, we have various commitments in the international sphere on sustainable development goals. Um, and we need to think of trade policy as something that aligns with that. And then when we look at, say, how uh, the UK's current trade agreements um, or the ones that it's negotiating with African countries affect trade in Africa, um, that gives us something to think about. It, is that helping us achieve um, ending hunger, achieving more resilient agricultural systems. So if we look at, for example, um, the tra trade agreement with Kenya, there was a lot of um, controversy around that because it was impacting the East African community uh, and influencing how these countries then trade in between each other. Um, and there was a lot of opposition, understandably, to that. This is something that the EU was also quite um, sort of uh, criticized for the way it created these partnership agreements with African countries um, and the way they impacted on integrating the whole um, continent. So these are really big, big questions, but they do come down to the sort of granular element of do we have a policy for how we're going to trade with particular um, developing countries? How is that helping create resilient, sustainable supply chains, not just with us, but in between countries in the sort of regional areas? Okay. I'm going to come on to Chris. Chris, um, from a business perspective, um, are you keen on seeing trade policy viewed as a sort of force for environmental good, or do you think that's a sort of bit of a distraction from the core purpose of trade policy? Do you like Liz Truss's emphasis on trade in low carbon technologies and that as, as a major objective of a greener trade policy? Um, absolutely, we support the agenda. I mean, we see future trade now very much in the context of being inclusive, being sustainable and being green. Um, that's our global commitment and message from the international business community. You know, I think we recognise that, you know, trade has played uh, an unsustainable role in, in a range of different environmental crises, whether it's climate or biodiversity or, or the environment more generally. But actually trade can play a much more sustainable role if it's done in the right way. And I think that's that's where policy is really important. I totally agree with, with Anna that, you know, we, we have, when we talk about the environment, we need to 
uh, in the context of trade, we need to connect it into a, a, a number of different agendas. We've seen an awful lot of around climate at COP26 this year. So the whole climate agenda is a really important angle on this and how we reach net zero goals and objectives. Uh, we've got COP15 coming next year on biodiversity, and that, and that will be a really important moment where the UK government is seeking to uh, play its part in, in creating what will effectively become the Paris Agreement for biodiversity. And then from that, that framework will come a whole host of rules, regulations, frameworks for uh, the country as a whole, but in, importantly for trade. Uh, and then there's the sort of wider environmental agenda, agriculture and other areas that are all connected into this conversation. From, from an industry point of view, it's pretty straightforward. This is, in a way, one of the most unifying agendas there is out there right now. We all agree with the direction of travel. Uh, but what the uh, what's important to the, to the need for a trade policy, uh, a published trade policy, is, is that we need to see how trade is clearly connected to, to be an enabler to allow us to get, a, get to these bigger goals you know, sustainable development goals, net zero goals, biodiversity goals, and environment more generally, um, because trade has a really, really important part to play. And we absolutely support the uh, the drive for, you know, green technologies and green industries, no question about that whatsoever. But we've got to align these frameworks. Um, you know, the, the, there's a big conversation going on at the World Trade Organization around aligning trade and climate. We've got to fully participate in that conversation because there are friction points between the frameworks and we need to we need to um, uh, smooth those out so that trade doesn't get in the way of what we're trying to achieve uh, more broadly. And Anna's completely right that the connection to the developing countries is really important. You know, we can't do this on our own. We're doing this in the context of the global community. So the UK trade policy needs to reflect that and set out how we are going to help other countries achieve the same objectives, global objectives that we're all signing up to. So, Dimitri, I'm very interested by Chris's emphasis there on the sort of multilateral framework, the importance of sort of, you know, we've got international conventions coming through, whether it's UNFCC, the Biodiversity uh, Convention. Um, but where do we think we can actually sort of go unilaterally as sort of UK? Is the UK well placed to push a sort of positive green agenda on this? I think it certainly can be. It's a constructive player with a lot of um, uh, with a lot of expertise um, and certainly a player that's that's good at communicating. Um, but I will say that in order to demonstrate genuine leadership on this. Um, I think the United Kingdom will need to decide whether the goal of its green trade policy is to, to massively oversimplify this, get as many solar panels on roofs as possible, or to get as many British solar panels on roofs as possible. Because I think that latter point is where a lot of governments are ending up at right now. Um, it is the idea that trade is there for environmental purposes, but it's primarily there for um, basically fueling a transition into green jobs domestically and that is fueling a lot of um a lot of policies the ones that you see in the, the us this idea that we will build back better but we will build back better um and i think in order to demonstrate global leadership the uk will have to basically say this is we are all in this together and solutions are good wherever they come from so some developing countries might see uh 
developed countries and an insistence on high environmental standards, particularly around sort of processes, as really a sort of form of green protectionism. I mean, how do we avoid that? Or should we actually be much more robust and say, yeah, we do want to export our high environmental standards and this is an important way of doing it? Absolutely. I mean, the, the opposition to things like environmental provisions in, uh, in agreements has always in large part come from developing countries suspicious of exactly what you're describing. Um, the fact that, you know, Sweden will insist that in order to sell anything to Sweden, you have to be exactly as green as Sweden and use that as a form of protectionism. Um, and I think the way that you the way that you combat that is by not doing it by making sure that if you establish an environmental standard, for example, then that standard is not difficult to prove against if you meet it. So that you don't use, for example, the paperwork um, requirements or the verification requirements of an environmental standard as a de facto form of protectionism. And that the targets you set are genuinely motivated by wanting the world to produce and consume greener rather than simply wanting to keep as many factories at home and just have them be producing wind turbines instead of diesel engines. And Martin, finally, I'm not sure how much this formed a discussion in the early days of DIT. I think when you're establishing a new department, usually the focus is on office space and IT systems and staffing up posts rather than setting setting direction. But, you know, was a was DIT sort of conscious of the fact that trade policy might not just be about taking forward trade deals and using that post-Brexit freedom, but actually uh, was there a lot of thinking going on when you were there about how you might use it as a vehicle for furthering wider policy objectives? And I don't know whether you've got views on what you think a trade policy that's good for the environment might look like. Well, yes, you're you're right, of course. Uh, the first thing you have to do is make sure the IT systems are up and functioning and so on. But I think it's fair to say that from the beginning, the 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 motivation behind having a separate uh, department of international trade was to use it to influence. Uh, it wasn't simply uh, to have a more efficient bureaucracy for dealing with independent trade negotiations. And it was to see it as having an active role uh, across government and then more widely in setting out what you were using trade policy to do. And I, I actually think that the, the July Green Trade Paper was a good example, among others, of the government saying, OK, here's what we're we're trying to do. Uh, and by picking up on areas like sustainable growth and making green trade free and fair, you're setting a direction of travel. The challenge, as, as Dimitri and, and colleagues have pointed out, of course, then is well, how exactly do you do this? And I think there, there are two issues here, really. One is the sort of internal plumbing of government. If you're dealing with a trade issue, let's say in the, the catchily named WTO structure discussion on trade and environmental sustainability, you know, how do you bring together the different parts of government that are involved in this and say, we should be now moving our position forward for these wider reasons? Um, or when do you say, well, we're going to go unilaterally and, and the government has said that they, they've reduced 100 tariffs on green products because we can obviously do that more quickly as a, as a single country. But I think whatever you do has to be sustainable in the sense 
not just of being green, but that it's going to work in all your other policy areas. It's not going to cut across your development policies, uh, but it's also, and I think we have to recognise this, it, got to be consistent with what you want to do in terms of domestic economic growth. And if you look at the Board of Trade's objectives, you know, they make the point that championing exports, inward investment, outward direct investment to deliver economic growth and prosperity across the whole of the UK. And that's a perfectly uh, legitimate objective. But as has been pointed out, there will be occasions when it produces tension with your wider global environmental policies. And then the real question is, how quick did you pick these up? And what's your mechanism inside government for dealing with them? Because trade negotiators, in my experience, very seldom get the, the latitude themselves to say, fine, we're, we're gonna shift policy on this. It has to go right back, as you know, uh, also so well, Jill, into the center of government and frequently uh, to the prime minister to decide what that trade-off is going to be. So I think we need to be very transparent in our processes so that people from outside, uh, like, like Anna and colleagues, can see what's going on and, and challenge to say, you may take this decision, but actually it doesn't have good environmental consequences. Or conversely, people in, say, a particular agricultural area can say, you do realise the very damaging consequences this could have for us even if it has wider good consequences. And then we have to get those out there and talk about them honestly, because there are trade-offs and there are choices to be made. And the question is basically, you know, how well are you making them? On what evidence and on what wider implications are you pulling in? I mean, Martin, of course, you're completely right about the challenges of coordination across government. Anna suggested that things would be helped if the UK government had an explicit published trade strategy. And this is something that we called for um, way back, I think in 2017 at Institute for Government. Uh, do you think that's a useful suggestion? We haven't seen one, I think, from the government. Was this something that was being considered? Well, of course, the first years of the Trade Department were really preparing for moving out of the EU structures. But my personal view on this is that it's good to have objectives, but it's quite difficult in a strategy to get granular enough about the trade-offs that you are seeking. So, you know, the government is right to, to flag its commitment to bringing together the trade and the environmental agendas. The real challenge is how do you do that in specific cases? Uh, from specific uh, agricultural or phytosanitary negotiations through areas like developing countries being perhaps unable at reasonable cost to meet or to show they're meeting some of the standards that are setting, or indeed our preparedness to say, well, you know, we are going to phase out trade in this area over the next X years, and we expect people to adjust to that, or indeed perhaps, you know, moving towards some system of carbon tax adjustments at borders, how it, it's really about how you judge all of those trade-offs. And frequently there will be a short-term trade-off between disruption to uh, certain parts of the, of the local economy uh, and wider trade objectives. And equally, you, know, you may want to support exports of green products because they will have a good wider global public good effect, but others may see that 
as unfair export subsidies. So you have to make sure these things ultimately play into multilateral settings. Otherwise, and you know, the, the Sweden example in inverted commas has been, has been made, but you can see a lot of these examples where people can say, but this was an environmental protection measure, and others say, well, no, actually, it's a way of protecting uh, parts of industry you want to develop at the price of our industry. And we have to be careful that we don't allow these really important environmental goals to get sucked into arguments about who's protecting what, because that is really a lose-lose position for everyone. And do you think actually if the government wrote down its objectives that it would be, do you think it's reluctant, we haven't seen a sort of formal trade strategy, do you think it's reluctant to expose its thinking about those trade-offs or, or do you think it's actually clear about those trade-offs, not having a strategy enabled you to take things on a case-by-case -case basis? I think a lot of the time you don't quite know what form the choices are going to come up in. Uh, you know, whether it's a, a sudden problem about the, the impact of certain pesticides on the bee population, to take an example that we've seen more recently. What I would like to see is what the Department of Trade is saying in areas like green trade and other uh, policies being reflected in other departments' objectives. So you're starting from an agreement that yes, we're all trying to do this, whether it's the business department, whether it's the foreign office and development, whether it's environment or indeed leveling up. So it's not the trade department coming and saying, hold on, you know, we can do this in trade, it's really important, but we've got to shift this policy. It's everybody saying, well, how can we use trade as a mechanism to deliver these agreed cross-government objectives? So let's not put them just in a trade box. Let's start from their government objectives or indeed national objectives, and trade is one means of delivering them. Dimitri, is, is having a public trade strategy useful? Anything we can learn from anyone else? The UK is, after all, a relative neophyte in uh, uh, running an independent trade policy because we delegated that to the EU for the best part of um, half a century. I think it's useful in that releasing one and going through the process can do a lot of what Martin was describing. Just the very act of coming together and saying, this is, we're going to have a whole of government strategy. Let's get all of the departments on board. As a trade negotiator, a lot of the time you're calling another department. Sometimes it's the first time they've really thought about what an FTA does. And their first reaction is very defensive, is saying, oh my God, what part of my job will I no longer be allowed to do in the way I want? because you are trying to get an FTA with Burundi across the line. Um, I, you know, I, I don't get promoted for getting FTAs done. I have a different job. So I think that process can be useful. Does the, I mean, any document that is built by committee on the scale of a national strategy will probably lack a lot of the specifics that Anna would like to see. Um, and I think that's inevitable. But I do think that that process of having a national conversation towards saying, what do we as a government want to achieve? And what is the role of trade in getting us there can be useful as a, in, in, in a whole range of ways. Chris, would it help business if the government was clearer about precisely what, when the, the Board of Trade's an interesting body, Liz Trust clearly sort of, you know, quite enthusiastic about what they produce, but they're not the same as the Department for International Trade. They're in a sort of more advisory body. Do you think it's helpful to have a published trade strategy or, or not? Yeah. 
I think the point Martin raises are actually really interesting. I mean, there is, uh, I think at the moment, uh, first of all, the Board of Trade paper is just a paper from the Board of Trade. It's not a policy paper. It hasn't gone through any of the processes of policy making. So I think that's really important. It's, in other words, it's not a government position. It's just some, some sort of central thinking, which is useful in itself because it does help give us some guidance as to where the minds are within the Department of Trade. I think that is important. But, uh, yeah, the, the central point for me here is, is, is pretty simple. The government can't deliver any of this without the support of industry, consumers, civil society, and everyone else in between. And so, you know, I, 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 I totally accept that Martin's point that we don't, we can't get into the detail. And I, I agree with that. You know, you can't get into all the minutiae of all the trade-offs. I totally agree with that. But at the moment, we, we just don't have anything that we can really hook into to give us that sense of what the direction is in clarity in the context of trade. Because I do think we need more public debate around trade-offs. We also need an awful lot more debate around mitigation. There are always winners and losers in trade. And, and you know, what are we doing for those who will be impacted more? We never have a conversation around that. But that needs a strategy. Otherwise, we'll have a backlash from a community seeking to protect its interests, or it may have completely valid concerns, uh, you know, particularly farmers uh, and, and vulnerable farmers in, in you know, sort of Yorkshire Dales and those sorts of places. We need to listen to those voices. But it's very difficult to do this in a coherent sense without some sort of framework. You know, what are we trying to achieve? What are the objectives here? How does this plug into the, our global objectives as a, as a global citizen, as a country? And then what and then what are the areas of tension within this within this framework in the context of trade so that when it comes to an FTA, we can then contextualize it and say, OK, look, we've got a, a trade negotiation on with Mexico. We've got one coming up. You know, there will be specifics in there. India there will be specifics, you know, but at the moment we're just leaping straight into FTAs. And, and then, of course, everybody narrows their focus and, and, and it's very easy to lose the big picture of what we're trying to achieve as a country. And that's the reason why I'm absolutely clear we do need a trade policy. Uh, we published the Trade for All framework with a whole host of business organisations and consumers and civil society organisations for that very reason, to try and help government say, look, these are the pillars, these are the areas we need you to be thinking about, these are the key objectives. And then what we were hoping is government would sort of respond to that and, and sort of set, set it out. And it's very clear in that document what the areas are that, that are of concern to everybody. So, you know, I, to summarise, I think we need something on paper that sort of sets out where we are, where we want to go, what those kind of tension points might be, and, and, then, and then we can have a more constructive public debate when it comes to, to FTAs and not just go leaping into that. FTAs, by the way, are only one small part of trade. You know, that's, that, that's a point I keep on making. You know, FTAs are not trade. Trade is much bigger than an FTA. FTA is just a vehicle in order to trade better with one country, but it's, it's, it is just one vehicle. It's a good vehicle and you can do a lot through it with the right, with the right country and the right party, but that's not trade. Trade is much bigger and we need to set that bigger picture out a little bit better than we are at the moment, I think. That's a great point, Chris, but I am, however, going to go to uh, to the UK's uh, recent uh, trade deals. Just very briefly, we will come back to the question of uh, wider trade policy, particularly what you can do multilateral context. Anna, there seems to be quite widespread support from the panel for your idea that it would be helpful to have a uh, published trade strategy, not 
least to clarify thinking within Whitehall about those trade-offs. But we don't have one, um, but we do now have some new agreements in principle being landed by the UK, notably with Australia and New Zealand. And obviously the DIT has done a terrific job in managing all those big rollover agreements from the EU. But broadly, they're very similar to the EU ones rather than striking out big new uh, new directions. And I think only yesterday uh, we landed a new digital services deal with Singapore, she says. I just wondered, Anna, you know, looking at this uh, without the trade strategy, uh, what's the reading from WWF about the, if you like, the UK's revealed preference for using trade as a vehicle for uh, environmental policy? Yeah, thanks, Jill. Um, well, I think we're, we're, what we're definitely seeing is that the UK is taking this sort of deal by deal approach. And I think what's interesting is if you compare the environment chapters in the Australia and the New Zealand deal, um, it's actually the environment chapter is strong, much stronger in the New Zealand deal than the Australia deal. And while we don't think these solve um, the problems by no means, I think it does say something about the UK's kind of willingness to, to do stuff. And if, if you can see it's sort of adapting to different uh, countries, that tells you something about how much the UK is willing to sort of put its values forward in negotiations. So I think we might have a challenge here to this this idea that um, Martin was talking about to, to having a sort of more value or like sort of having a um, leading in, in, in terms of values or, uh, or ideas of what to take forward. Um, and then in terms of what we really think are the environmental issues and the sort of approach the UK is taking at the moment, well, we mainly work on agriculture. So, so we're looking at how um, possible um, liberalisation of agriculture in the Australian and the New Zealand deal would impact uh, sustainability of farming domestically and also how it would potentially offshore some of our impacts. And I think here we're seeing that there's definitely, um, well, there's definitely a desire to liberalise, um, to, to have more agricultural trade. Um, but what's very concerning for us is not the fact that we're going to trade more, it's that we're going to trade in things that we don't think are, are good enough environmentally. Uh, and here really it's so important to, to emphasize what, what Mitri was saying, what some others were saying as well, is that it's not about trying to sort of save our farmers. I mean, we do obviously care about helping our farmers transition to more sustainable farming, which is what they're doing. But what we really want to, to, to see is a sort of global transition to more sustainable agriculture. So we would want some form of standards, some form of regulations that mean that we're not just importing anything, that we're really valuing the efforts that our farmers are making uh, to transition to greener forms of farming and that we're not uh, undermining those efforts by making them compete with um, with substandard imports. So, so yeah, we're definitely worried about the direction in which the um, agricultural trade uh, is going. Uh, and, and I think it's really important as well to, to see this in the context of future deals, because while we might not be uh, importing a huge amount of uh, some of these products from, say, New Zealand, and maybe maybe we're not importing that much dairy from New Zealand at the moment. Uh, it could increase in the future and that, that now that we will lower our quotas and tariffs. Um, but it means that because we've negotiated this type of deal with New Zealand now, when we when we start negotiating with um, with Brazil, when we start negotiating with the US, I mean, how are we going to ask them to then uh, not um, 
to, to fill a certain environmental standard. I mean, I think uh, most people would agree we don't want to import um, products from deforestation from Brazil. But I would totally see the argument of the Brazilian negotiators saying, well, if you've allowed imports from Australia, which also has deforestation, um, why are you why are you telling us what to do? And I think that's really where the UK um, sort of approach by deal by deal approach to trade um, is going to trip itself up. Demetrius, of course, the government has said that these deals don't represent a precedent and that it will take each uh, case on its merits. But I wonder whether we're really realistic about the ability of the UK to impose more stringent environmental conditionality, if you like, on some of these people that we're negotiating with. Anna pointed out we have stronger provisions, it appears, in the New Zealand agreement than in the Australian one. Um, but we were very, very, very keen to land that Australian deal. Do you think that uh, that anyone other than maybe the US can really impose environmental conditions plausibly on another trading partner? I can think of one one block that is capable of imposing environmental standards potentially on a trading partner, um, but uh, it's recently lost one of its members, uh, so it no longer so much uh, applies to the UK. Um, and, and in fact, if you think about it, the, the trade and continuity agreement, the withdrawal agreement, is probably the closest anyone has ever come to, to legitimately sort of imposing environmental standards in a forward-leaning way on another trading party. So something to think about. Um, I will say kind of more uh, more broadly, um, ultimately to the question of precedent, um, it is a rhetorical precedent, it is not a legally binding one. Um, the fact that the UK has offered this, has offered certain things to Australia and New Zealand doesn't compel them to offer it to Brazil or the US, but as Anna says, it sure as hell makes it harder to sit across from Brazil or the US having given access to very, very large agricultural producers like New Zealand and Australia and start to, start to push back. Um, so it's a rhetorical reason that makes sense. Um, ultimately, I think the fact is the UK probably can't arm twist too hard. Um, the fact that it wasn't able to extract greater concessions from Australia, despite offering Australia absolutely full market access in agriculture, which is the, the holy grail of Australian trade negotiations, that even with that as the offer, it was only able to extract minimal environmental concessions um, and minimal concessions in other areas doesn't necessarily bode well for a, um, a, a muscular and a, and a powerful position in negotiations with other members who may need market access into the UK even less than Australia and New Zealand do. Um, so uh, not necessarily a lot of scope there, but ultimately, look, the UK is a G7 economy. It has 60 plus million consumers that are fairly well off. Access to that market is worth something. Um, and the UK has to decide what it what it wants to trade that for as it conducts its trade policy around the world. And if it decides to put more of its chips on environmental sustainability, on green investment provisions, then it will get more than it otherwise would. That's very interesting. Um, Anna, just, just back to you quickly. I think you were giving evidence to the House of Lords International Agreements Committee this week about the New Zealand deal. And one of your co-panelists said the first rule of trade policy is do no harm to your existing standards, uh, which I thought was quite a striking phrase. 
Uh, and James Kane from IFG has written something about actually, you know, there are domestic regulatory implications of what you sign up to in some of these trade deals. I wonder whether you thought the Australian New Zealand deals as you see it uh, passed your do no harm test. We had those big arguments uh, between DEFRA and the DIT back in summer of 2017 about uh, the potential for a US trade deal to undermine animal welfare standards. But I wondered whether you thought uh, thought that do no harm at least was uh, was delivered through those deals. I think I think it's quite uh, tricky to say based on the agreements in principle because we will sort of see the final text when it's um, sort of fully gone through the legal scoring process. Um, so for the types of things that were um, discussed before, like food standards, um, and I mean here the sort of food safety standards, I think we'll have to wait for, for a final deal to make that statement. But um, where it's really tricky to assess the harm is that we we might not see an immediate harm, or we might not see our standards changing immediately in terms of how we farm, how we do um, what kind of environmental regulations we apply to our farmers. But we'll see this over, over time, right? So we see from the scoping assessments uh, for the Australia and the New Zealand deals um, that they're, project they're projecting uh, a decrease in, um, in UK farming sectors, right? So, so there is an understanding that this, uh, and this is clear for, for government as well, that this will impact how the UK farming sectors operate. And we're going for a very, um, like a very complicated process of trying to design a new farming payment system with um, public money for public goods. So paying for our farmers to produce in more environmentally friendly ways. And you can understand why, why certain farmers are saying, well, if, if I'm not given the space to do this by having to suddenly compete with industrial agricultural produce from Australia, why would I sign up to this, to this scheme? Why would I try and implement these changes in my farm? So I think there's a very real risk that we'll just lose this opportunity um, to, to, to change. And in that way, yes, we would, we would see a harm coming from the FDAs, but it's a kind of harm, harm that you might not be able to sort of pinpoint immediately. And that's, that's, all, that's where the danger is, right? That we might not have a Trade and Agriculture Commission report saying this is exactly what will happen because they might not have the ability to do that kind of uh, or the, the sort of um, it might not be within their remit to do that kind of modeling for the future but but that's that's clearly a risk that we're hearing from farmers and from the government scoping assessments themselves as well. So we've got loads of chat about uh, in the Q&A about how we reconcile trade policy broadly interpreted not just trade agreements with net zero uh, where the UK just chaired the COP, uh, COP president to be the rest of the year, committed to be a leader, has legislated targets to deliver net zero but obviously huge amounts of concerns. Quite a lot of people pointing out that of course one of the ways in which the UK has developed, uh, delivered its quite impressive emissions reduction performance is through exporting emissions quite effectively. We know that some jurisdictions are looking at uh, potential for carbon border adjustment mechanisms. So I want to ask all of you, what actually you think a really good sort of net zero trade policy for the UK, but also maybe more globally would look like and whether that should be taken in, whether it's to COP27, um, we've also got the allied issue of biodiversity and the COP coming up on on that. Chris, what 
do you think from a business perspective, you're being placed under quite a lot of you know pressure in domestic jurisdictions to make the transition to net zero. What does a net zero trade policy really, really need to look like to deal with this? Or you know, is this a bit of a red herring? Because if everybody signs up to commitments, it doesn't actually matter whether we import from lower uh, from jurisdictions less demanding uh, net zero targets. Um, just just before I, I go, go into that, I mean, just on the FTA point, uh, this, the Singapore agreement that was launched yesterday, the oh, first sorry, yes. of a groundbreaking FTA, that's a new gold standard. So that will now get copied all over the world. Uh, so that's a perfect example of the role that FTAs can play, you know, if they're done in the right way. And of course, I suppose what we're looking for here is, is a gold standard green type yeah. FTA agreement, isn't it? I mean, that, that, that's quite, that, so that Chris, not quite, not, not Chris, quite there. Anyway. Just quickly for those of us that aren't across the detail of the Singapore FTA, uh, the Singapore agreement, did it, does it per se do anything on promoting sort of, you know, uh, the green agenda or is it just that this is an example of the UK being able to strike a rather different pose and then raise the bar, if you like, which is one of our ambitions in trade policy? Well, digital trade is everything. So digital trade is actually the future of trade. It's the trade ecosystem and everything that's encompassed within it. It's the systems and processes. It's the finance, the money, the goods, the services that we're all providing. But in a digital environment, that, that's the key. So it's not e-commerce or it's not, you know, just for a small section of the trading economy. It, this is going to impact everybody. What's so exciting about the Singapore agreement is you, you've got in there really groundbreaking um, agreements on things like legal harmonization, on interoperability, so we can get full digitization across the whole trade highway between the UK and Singapore. And that's important for the green agenda because it allows us to put the technology solutions in place to track and trace so we can better monitor what trade is going between what country. We know exactly then whether those, you know, we are, you know, fulfilling our green trade goals or we're monitoring non-green trade and making sure that we're able to manage that down over, over the course of time. So, you know, digital trade is an enabler to get us to that more transparent environment where we can actually see what's going on out there in a much more efficient way than we currently can at the moment. And then the New Zealand Australia deals, by the way, are a good example of one very green economy in the New Zealand example. And then Australia was always going to be a tough cookie because that's just kind of the nature of the economy that they are, I and mean, you can see the compromise. I think Anna's right. You can see the compromise in between. And then I, I think you know a point here is probably capability. The Australians are extremely good trade negotiators. They've been doing it for a long time. We haven't. We, we're sort of learning the trade or relearning the trade again. So I do wonder sometimes at the moment, especially around the green agenda, whether that's just a reflection of where we are, and, and actually that will get better over the course of time. Um, and then in terms of the broader picture, I mean, you know, there is always a trade-off. I was talking about this just yesterday, actually, but we have to be careful when we're trying to, you know, get to net zero. We all agree we want to get to net zero. But in the current environment where we're dealing with COVID, co companies are swamped in costs. Everything is going upwards in terms of cost uh, across supply chains. Supply chains are an important aspect of this, by the way that when you're trading, you're importing and exporting across quite often the whole world. Even if you're an SME, you're buying products that are coming from all over the world. So the UK piece is actually, 
the easier piece to some degree. It's the it's that footprint piece which is much harder. How do we do that across multiple jurisdictions in a way that gets us all to net zero in a manageable time frame? So if some of this is about managing expectations, we all agree with the goal, but being clear too that you know you know that FTAs aren't the be all and end all, and they are also the end of a negotiation. All it says is this is where we are right now. That doesn't stop us from improving on it as we go forward. Uh, and, th and that's an important point to make. So we don't get fixated, this is forever. And then to the agricultural point, I mean, agriculture was always going to be heavily impacted because they've, they've been living under this duvet of subsidies in, in the EU for a very long time. And then suddenly you're out in the open world and you're up against the Argentinians, the Brazilians. So these, these guys are hugely mechanized farms at a colossal scale. So we've got to compete with that, but we've got to do it in a way where we don't lose our farmers. We need our farmers to protect our environment. They're a really, really important part of our landscape. So, you know, we, we, we need to sort of negotiate in a way that gets us forward, but doesn't have to necessarily get us to the end goal, but just do it in, a, in an orderly, manageable fashion with the country where we can. And agriculture, by the way, when you get into negotiations, often is the big issue as we'll probably find out when we start talking to the likes of India. You know, it becomes the number one issue, much bigger than services, which obviously for us are a much more important issue. But it's the, usually the agriculture point, the US deal is a perfect example too, where it's, it's the agriculture point that holds everything up. And that's often why they take seven years, not one year. Because we're all arguing about the agriculture and how we trade off across each country. And then just finally on, on trade agreements, Let's not forget that EU relationship. We've got to get the EU relationship right. You know, we're living in a world now where we need to be more sustainable. You know, yes, it's great to do a New Zealand deal. We love that. We, we like the New Zealand deals. We want to trade with them more. No problem with that. But shipping products from New Zealand to the UK is a hell of a long way. If we can ship a product from, from, uh, from Europe and we can do that in a nice, seam, seamlessly amicable way, then clearly that's a, a more advantageous point to, uh, to, to focus on while we do this bigger sort of wider trade piece. Martin, I want to come to you about this sort of, you know, uh, you run the business department, so you've obviously had concerns from businesses about uh, competitiveness. You've run the trade department, so you've obviously been there at the forefront of trying to develop a UK approach trade and you've been knocking around long enough, uh, even if you weren't ever responsible for climate change because uh, that came in from DEC uh, when DIT was created, um, but you know the sort of problems that uh, dealing with that can pose across government. Do you have a sort of view looking at whether the government actually has a clear view about how it wants to integrate its net zero commitments and strategy with its, if you like, you know, industrial strategy, I know it doesn't use those words anymore, levelling up, with its trade policy? Um, are we at that sweet spot yet where we have a coherent approach? Well, that's a good question and really difficult. And I, I learned a little bit about how difficult the climate agenda was as a, a Sherpa negotiating the Glen Eagles 2005 uh, agreement. And, and civil society was so important then too. So let me just step back and make two quick points, which I think surround that question. One is, you know, we inevitably have quite a lot of sort of rhetorical uh, commentary, which is high level and optimistic. But that, I think, has to be seen as part of the dialogue with civil society, both here in the UK 
and internationally. Because ultimately, when you're looking at how we manage trade towards net zero in a business friendly way, which allows people time to adjust, avoids you know, people falling off cliffs unnecessarily, avoids huge costs to the poorer consumers. We've got to do this together. Uh, it's not going to be the Department of Trade or the Cabinet Office or anybody else coming out with the answer. That just isn't how these, these issues work. They're too complex. The international environment is too uncertain and changing. So I think you know we have to have an honest dialogue with ourselves about what we really want, what we're prepared to pay for it, and what the sensible timescales are. And then I think we have to be very transparent. And here too, there's another key role for business, for, for civil society, for NGOs, about um, what, what's really going on. It's a bottom-up process. If you look at um, carbon footprints, as has already been, been said, you know, a lot of this is supply chains. We need, first of all, to understand where the carbon is coming from before we start trying to have controls at borders or taxes or quotas or whatever other rather crude mechanisms we've got. Because until we're really clear about where carbon is created and you know how much it costs to move stuff from New Zealand uh, to the UK as opposed to from Argentina or from France, what the alternatives are for everyone and how we can do this, we're going to need bottom-up sector-specific solutions in lots of areas, even in services, you know, where actually the costs of, of, of running servers, just in terms of energy, is very considerable. And the problem will be, because that's so complex, it's an excuse for saying it's all too difficult. But I think we've, we've got a sort of consensus after COP, and certainly in the UK, that we need to get on with this. But, but what we can't look for is somebody producing a blueprint. What we're going to have to do is manage to spin all these plates simultaneously and challenge ourselves as to how well we're doing it, but also check that we're getting the trade-offs right. And then really importantly, do this uh, with others. So, I mean, I would agree that you know there are some relatively quick wins through regulatory cooperation with uh, the European Union, but then you've got to find WTO, at least coalitions of the willing, who are going to do these things together and prevent the inevitable temptation to free ride and get a little bit of a, of a benefit for somebody's exports in the process, while recognizing that trade is also about building growth and prosperity. But it's not trade on top of everything else. I think I would just encourage people to remember that trade is simply a delivery mechanism. Those objectives come from other parts of government and other parts of society. And then you know you use trade to deal with them. But if you're talking to um, developing countries like India, they're going to want to talk about um, movement of workers as well as all these other issues. So you know the agenda isn't just where we want to go, it's where everybody else is. And I, and I think that's why this really affects everybody across government. And that discussion then has to be with civil society as well. But we have to challenge ourselves then to get on from saying things to doing things. And if they're not working, let's change them. But you know, we're going to have to test things out here because the green net zero agenda is the biggest single challenge to uh, trade that we've seen in uh, 80 years. No, you wanted to come in on uh, on this. What do you think uh, a trade strategy for a net zero world to make that come closer looks like? Uh, 
Uh, yeah, thanks, Jill. Um, I think I think we're starting to sort of see this in the in the right way of something being that that sort of overarches different departments, that overarches our rela trading relationships. And I think one really important point is to say that it's not just net zero. And I, I know I may be asking a lot here, but I think we need to remember that net zero is about carbon emissions and we need to think about environmental impacts more broadly than that. So for instance, uh, we know New Zealand agriculture has a lot of problems, even though they have a net zero plan, agriculture still emits 48% um, of their total emissions and it's not under their emissions trading scheme. Uh, they have huge water pollution effects. Uh, like it's it's like the numbers of of species. I think it's 70, 76 percent of all fish endangered. It's something of those kinds. So just thinking about the environmental impacts, not just net zero. But then if we go back to the sort of more like how do we integrate that into trade strategy point? I think one thing that's worth emphasizing is that we we do that via a published trade policy, but we also do that via uh, legislation and not just via FDAs because. Um, we know that there's just that things are too complicated to be negotiated in a particular FDA and that we want them to apply across the board. So when we talk about core environmental standards for all imports, we're thinking of this as a type of legislation that applies to all countries that we trade with. And in that way, we're not saying, well, you Australia get this access and you Brazil get that access. No, we're saying we have the same uh, kinds of standards that we apply across. And we have examples of that in, in other countries. So the Marine Mammal Protection Act in the US requires all seafood producers to make sure that they're not, um, that they're sufficiently effective in protecting marine mammals. So they have to get uh, a kind of certification to show that. Um, and and the US has, uh, has sort of tweaked that and made it work in WTO rules. So we, we clearly see that this can, this can operate. It's just a question of, of sort of, figuring it out and and yeah and I completely take the point that you can't have everything in the trade policy which is I think that's why you'd need a trade policy to say we need to work out this area and this is where we need more legislation and then you have a process that involves all the stakeholders that involves um, all your sort of countries that you might be uh, impacting trade with and brings them in to, to design that kind of thing. Mitri. Dimitri, Anna mentioned there the uh, the prospect of doing things in the WTO. Um, I just wondered, you, you're joining us from Geneva. It's one of the wonders of doing online events. Um, uh, 20 years ago, I think people thought that the WTO was inherently anti-green, anti anti-environment. You know, do you see any prospect of the WTO becoming a sort of force for raising environmental standards is this an area where the uk should um uk should should aim to take a lead is the uk well, taking a lead well let's be absolutely clear the wto itself is not a force for anything um it, it's a secretariat that serves 164 governments if those 164 governments decide that they have an objective of greening trade the wto will become a force for greening trade if as has been the more consistent pattern, those 164 members are unable to agree on anything or are primarily um, concerned with protecting their exporters um, and making things as 
tricky as possible for, for the kind of imports that compete with them, then I don't think the WTO will be a tremendous force for, for green or for anything um, for that matter. There are certainly really interesting discussions starting up at the WTO, whether those are the, the test D discussions that Martin mentioned before, is really interesting conversations starting around plastics. These are being driven largely by coalitions of the willing. Um, the, the, but those coalitions can represent 80-90% of global trade. So these are significant conversations, but they are nascent. And the WTO as an institution trails thought elsewhere. Once the major players have agreed on the sort of internally and among themselves about the balance of global trade and how rules it can work, um, they can then, the WTO is a good place for them to then multilateralize that and lock it down. Um, but, you know, no green transition is going to come from the WTO. The WTO can be an actor in it and can be a way to multilateralize and lock in decisions that are going to be made in London, Brussels, New Delhi, um, Washington, D.C. and so on. Chris, do you want to come in on this? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the W. I, mean, I agree with Dimitri's points, but I mean, I think that the, the WTO is also, um, you know, it, it is the central body to have the conversation on trade. I mean, you know, whatever the issues going on at WCA around reform, and we, we all get that, but you can't avoid the fact that actually it is a terrific platform to get that scale. You know, I think we're in the world now where we're not really looking at multilateral agreements, we're looking at plurilateral, you know, coalitions of the willing. But if, if you can get a sort of line of thinking going along around a particular environmental issue and how you tackle that using trade as an enabler, to Martin's point, then actually that's a terrific mechanism to get that across 80 countries. And of course, that gets us all to the end goal faster. So that, that's the way to look at it. Obviously, it's more complicated because you've got to go through that global conversation, but that's, a, that's you know, a smart mechanism. But we shouldn't just think about WTO either, don't forget. There's also the Commonwealth. We should be talking a lot more about the Commonwealth. We should be talking about things like the Indian Ocean Rim Association. We're a, we're a partner to that. That's got an interesting mix of countries around that network. We should be talking about G20. That's got a, an interesting network of countries that have a huge environmental impact. Half over, I think it's half the, the world's land mass is in the G20 and 70% of the world's population. So, you know, if you can get agreement going through those other networks too, then we start to, to get going. And my final point around trade is what trade is great for is, is to globalize the conversation to the supply chain point, is you, you can take that thinking from your own national capital. I totally agree that it has to happen at home. But you can then start to then sort of have the conversation about where are you guys on this? You know, how do we achieve that? You know, could we do this across 10 countries or 20 countries or 30 countries? And then it starts to get really exciting about the possibilities because obviously you can't do that on your own. And, and so that, that those communities, we need to really leverage. And the industry plays a really important role here too. It's not just government that has hard power, soft power. Industry has networks all over the world, in government and across industry. So we need to find ways to better mobilize industry to help here, because we want the same goals. And we're, at the end of the day, we're the ones who are going to execute it. So. You know, if we can work closer with government, the government can really see the industry as a partner, then again, we get to that end goal faster and quicker in a way that's manageable uh, uh, than we do if we don't do any of those things. Um, Chris, uh, no, thanks very much, Chris. We're coming to the final minute. So I just wanted to ask two quick fire questions. 
Martin, who should we hold responsible if the UK's trade policy isn't green enough? Is that a failure by DEFRA? Is it a failure by DIT? One word answer or Bayes? <laughs> trying to unmute here. <laughs> you are uh, unmuted. I know, I can't. <laughs> Nick, you are. You are, it's fine. Oh no, you're muted. Okay, Martin, you're un Okay, that's not worked, so. No, Martin, you're muted. Okay, Anna, okay. final word. We couldn't hear from Martin there. He di diplomatically uh, muted himself <laughs> just as he's about to dump on one of his former colleagues. Anna, uh, how crucial is getting this right to maintaining public support for trade liberalisation? One oh, sentence. Absolutely, absolutely crucial. I mean, I think most people remember what happened when there wasn't public support for the Trans-Pacific Partnership a few years back and the, like the scale of protests that happened at that stage. The CPTPP is the successor of, of that. So I'm just going to put that out there as, as what can happen if, if we don't get public buy-in for these kinds of trade agreements. OK, I'm going to have to call it a day there. Uh, you'll all be able to take bets on who Martin tried to say would be responsible. Maybe no, it's the I've Prime Minister. Seen, it's, in the, it's in the meeting chat. All right. <laughs> it's the whole of government. It's the whole of government. OK, so we'll hold the Prime Minister and his entire cabinet to account. I just wanted to end by thanking a terrific panel. Uh, that was a really interesting chat. I'm sorry if we didn't come to your specific questions. I hope we covered most of the bases there. And can I finally thank WWF for helping us put this event on. Uh, there'll be a video available later, so please do watch. And thank you all for engaging so much with the conversation, which I thought was really interesting. And we'll go on and on, but not today. Thank you all very much. Thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. Music